For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what's in store at the Flagstaff Red Screen Film Festival, celebrating contemporary Native American cinema. Former astronaut Mark Kelly reflects on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And listen to a spotlight session featuring the soulful, bluesy music of Heather Hardy. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. work of Indigenous filmmakers will be showcased next weekend at the Flagstaff Red Screen Film Festival. Next, Emma Gibson speaks with two directors about their films and the importance of depicting the Indigenous experience for all to see. People think Indians always knew that we were powerful and we always, we always acted that way, mm-hmm. but we didn't. Everybody accepted the racism, but during that time, people were standing up and saying, hey, yeah, I am Indian. We want to be who we are, not who you are. That was a clip from Warrior Women, a film by Elizabeth Castle. She introduces the viewer to Madonna Thunderhawk and her daughter, Marcy Gilbert, who are both activists for Native American rights. Warrior Women and other films, like three of Christopher and Tani Sigelski's pieces, will be featured at the Flagstaff Red Screen Film Festival July 24th through the 28th. Castle and Sigelski say that this festival celebrates indigenous people, but also calls attention to their very existence. Sigelski says he's surprised by how many people in Los Angeles say he's the first Native American they've ever met. We're people. We are Foundation of America. A lot of our people and our stories have not only seemed to be forgotten in the mainstream media, but we're not even really shown. Castle adds that Indigenous film can educate non-Native viewers who she says have been purposely kept ignorant of the complete version of history. How you write history and how you make media are the two quickest ways to tell lies, to misrepresent truths, and to erase knowledge of the people. It's so important to have Indigenous voices and worldviews in filmmaking and to support it because it is absolutely crucial to telling a true story. As Castle uses film to tell the stories of women in the Red Power movement, Sigelski uses it to push himself as an artist on a limited budget. He says his short film, Fight Before the Fight, emerged when he met Jake Ramirez. In the film, Ramirez tells us the story of how his life changed the night a group of men attacked him at a party. That's what really pushed me to start training. I wanted to be a better fighter protect myself if that ever happened again. But I found as I started training that I loved it. And I started seeing Muay Thai as less of a sport and more of a discipline. More as a way of life. Sigelski says in this piece and in his other short films, he likes to focus on the trials of young indigenous people. 
I want to highlight their integrity. I want to kind of highlight their work ethic. I want to show our younger generation that you can do this, you can strive for this, and these do get you places. Castle says her goal with Warrior Women was to share with the world what she learned as she collected stories for her dissertation. The Warrior Women Oral History Project includes interviews with most of the, the activists who are the women connected to the Red Power Movement or Native Activist Movement of the 60s and 70s, and most of them are still very much active today. It's not so much, you know, I'm an activist. It's I'm trying to survive as a Native woman and protect my family and protect my culture. She says many people still view Indigenous women as inconsequential. And in this film, she uses Madonna Thunderhawk and her daughter Marcy Gilbert to show the relatable power of Indigenous women. Here's a clip from the film where Gilbert and her mom talk about how they saw the women involved in the American Indian movement. Watching the women is amazing how they handled everything. Protecting our people and our, our children's future and fighting, being warriors in that way. The press, they just automatically gravitated to the men. And who really knew what was going on and was really running the show were the women. When they both see it now, they're experiencing a communication with each other that they may not be able to have otherwise. It's a really beautiful way for us to see like these systems that are real, like the intergenerational legacy of boarding school, which right now a lot of Americans don't realize that boarding school is not like a Harry Potter experience of privilege, that it was a place of cultural genocide and a lot of pain. Just to see the way in the film the way these women have both recognized that pain, but also we get to see them real and authentic in how they are in life, but also like decolonizing and winning a little, you know, surviving. She says she wanted to dive into these deep topics because she thinks everyone needs to talk about them more. I asked her about the impact the films had on viewers, and she says the film's engaging and empowering young Native women and others to become activists, too. You say that in the past, the Red Power movement was run by women. Are Native rights movements still run by women? Absolutely. Here's the thing. This is what my book is about. It's from this education I got from all of these women it shouldn't be a surprise to most folks that we're getting a dangerously incomplete history in the United States. And that's the nicest way to put it. That's been part of the game is like, you don't let this knowledge out. You don't let these stories out. If you come to see these films at the Red Screen Film Festival, there's a lot of really powerful films that'll reframe how you think about things. And that's what you get by supporting indigenous voices. Castle says this film has the power to educate people about how the United States responded to indigenous people. And if Americans don't know the country's history, it could become their future. I'm Emma Gibson for Arizona Spotlight. Warrior Women and Fight Before the Fight will be two of the films at the Flagstaff Red Screen Film Festival, which runs July 24th through the 28th.
This Saturday will mark the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission's landing on the moon. Former astronaut Mark Kelly, a veteran of four space shuttle missions, visited the Kennedy Space Center in Florida for anniversary festivities. He and his twin brother, astronaut Scott Kelly, were five years old in July of 1969. He told AZPM's Christopher Conover, despite all the attention the historic event received, he doesn't remember the launch. My brother, he remembers Apollo 11, you know, as as Neil walked, you know, stepped down the ladder and onto the surface of the moon. He remembers it. I don't remember any of it. And it's because my mother uh, told told me that I fell asleep on the floor. So I missed it. I do remember the later Apollo missions. I don't know if it was starting at 12, but I, I do I do have like a recollection of other guys, especially like Apollo 17, 16 and 17 when they had the rover, um, you know, on the surface of the moon. I remember all that. But by then I was like, you know, seven years old. I remember that stuff vividly, vividly but not not Apollo 11. Yeah, my mom took me to the launch. I don't remember which one it was. It was the only night launch, and they kept putting it off, which you know all about. And they finally launched very late at night, and she said, I slept through the whole thing sitting on the beach, uh, probably right about where you are. So, yeah, we kids aren't always uh, the best at realizing what we're looking at. When you were a little kid watching that stuff go on, even the later missions, did, is, did you say, that's what I want to do? Or was it a you know a kid from New Jersey, now that's never going to happen? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, I always thought about it as a kid growing up and, you know, I'd really love to do that, you know, someday. I also, you know, especially as you get older, you start to realize that there's, uh, you know, there's statistics involved and you might not have known what that was called then, but you, you know, you start to realize like a lot of people interested, not a lot of spots. Um, but, you know, fortunately for me, I always went into I always did things that also happened to be a good, um, at least starting point or a good next step to eventually, you know, becoming an astronaut, you know, whether it was, you know, being interested in science and math in high school or, you know, going to a school where I can get an engineering degree or going into the Navy to fly airplanes and then going to graduate school or becoming a Navy test pilot. It was always, and it wasn't like in a big plan, but it was always, that's what I wanted to do anyway. Um, and then, uh, you know, I found myself in a position where I could be competitive for the job. When you were walking around the astronaut office as part of the astronaut corps, did, were any of the Apollo guys left at that point? Did you ever meet any of them? Well, I've met almost everybody that walked on the surface of the moon that was alive by the time I got there. I mean, including like Alan Shepard, who had long, you know, left the astronaut office before I got there. But there was one guy that was still there and for probably he was probably there for half of my career as an astronaut and that's John Young. You know, John Young Young flew two Gemini flights, two Apollo flights, and then two flights on the space shuttle, including being the first commander of the space shuttle. And he was also the uh chairman of the astronaut selection board when I was picked and my brother was picked. So he was a um you know it was it was uh just an honor to work with him. And um, he was, you know, he was just like a presence, right, for uh, had such a long career. I mean, he was around way after all the other Apollo guys left. If memory serves, he uh, that first flight on uh, shuttle STS-1, it was Crippen and Young, if memory serves. Yeah, Bob yeah. Crippen, John Young, 
April 18th, 1981. I was in the 11th grade. And I remember my brother and I kind of cut school to watch the landing. And I remember being in my basement with our neighbor, Mark Jessen, um, and really wanting to see this, you know, this airplane fly back from space. I just thought it was like such an incredible, you know, feat. And, um, and they landed on the lake bed in California, but, and then later started landing on the runway, which I happened to visit when I was like in the ninth grade, you know, I remember sitting out at the, uh, you know, on a tour of the Kennedy space center in a bus and the tour guide saying that, you know, one day there's going to be this thing called the space shuttle is going to land on this runway. And, uh, I happened to land on that runway four times. When when you meet these American heroes, especially the the Apollo gang, is there a level of wow and reverence, or are you all just astronauts? This is the job you do, and while you didn't walk on the moon, nobody's walked on the moon in a long time, you all still have similar experiences to a certain level. It's a little of both, but I would say that, like as an example, I was on the phone with Buzz Aldrin two weeks ago. I was driving back from Phoenix. And I just decided to give Buzz a call because I thought he'd be down here for this event. And uh, he called me back. I was on the phone with him for about 30 minutes. But, you know, I am always in awe to talk to any of these guys. I mean, it's just, it's just a, such a unique group. I mean, space shuttle astronauts, there's hundreds of us. Um, guys that walked on the moon, there's 12. And how many of them are still alive today? I don't know, maybe four, five? something like that. Uh, so like the opportunity, even though I've known Buzz for a long time and I knew Neil Armstrong as well and Mike Collins, um, I just think it's so cool to get, you know, to get to talk to him. And the fact that he would return my phone call, it's very nice. If the opportunity came back around, they said, uh, we'll send you to the moon. Would you jump at it? Of course. <laughs> In a second. Now I wouldn't like do the one-way trip to Mars. It's not a not a good deal for anybody, uh, and I don't think we'll ever do that. So we'll, you know, we'll we'll get people back. So yeah, I'd be I'd be all over that. Christopher Conover spoke with retired astronaut Mark Kelly. Join me here next week for a conversation with Jeff Notkin, the newly elected president of the National Space Society, for more about the United States history and future of lunar exploration. Heather Hardy has been making music on the violin all her life, comfortable with styles including blues, folk, jazz, rock, and bluegrass. She's contributed to the recordings of more than 200 artists. One thing I don't have to mention is her soul, because you'll be able to hear that for yourself. Heather Hardy is accompanied by Alvin Blaine on vocals and guitar in this Spotlight Session. When you first started playing violin, did you imagine that you were going to one day be playing this 
blend of rock, blues, folk? Not at all. What was your introduction to the instrument? 100% classical. My beginning was uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in, in public school. My first instrument was piano. So as soon as I started violin, I loved it. But I did, as a young girl, I listened to jazz and blues a lot. And I always wanted to play, but I, I was completely immersed in classical. the first record collection that you had access to? For most people, it's their parents. Some people, it's their grandparents, or maybe it's just a really cool friend. But do you remember the first treasure trove of, of real music that you had access to? My brother, my older brother. And what kind of stuff was he into? Jazz. Oh. He played trumpet, and he played in a big band, and so he was had lots and lots of great jazz. And then it was the 70s, so he was a few years in front of me with rock and roll, and a lot of Todd Rundgren, which I really liked. <laughs> <laughs> Alvin, what about with you? Do you remember? Uh, mine was my parents. My yeah. dad had hundreds and hundreds of albums. And what kind of stuff did he have that you liked? <sighs> Everything. <laughs> he actually had a lot of uh, a lot of old country and a lot of old bluegrass because he played banjo, mandolin, fiddle. So he had a lot of that stuff. But also had all kinds of stuff, all kinds of Baja Marimba band to, you know, all sorts of things. And what kind of influence do you think that had on you? What what road did that lead you down? I started playing mandolin when I was four or five, and banjo when I was like eight or nine. So <laughs> I started playing the stuff that was on his records. Oh yes, I'm rolling and it's had the opportunity to work with many of the best artists in Tucson. Alvin is one example. But when I first saw you play, it was with Sam Taylor. I had just arrived in Tucson, so Sam was my entrance to meeting all the best players. I had no idea the wealth of music here. There were so many great scenes. Like We played a different club every night. We would have our Monday night or our Tuesday night. And each club was its own scene of people. And uh, musicians came out and sat in, and you know it was it was a great time. But there's nobody like Sam. I mean, Sam could command a room, and just you could not sit down when Sam was playing. You could not. And he's the reason I try to sing. You know, he's the he was the reason that I started to write. It was very encouraging, and he had fun. 
You know, he really had a good time. Reaching out in darkness, trying to touch the light. Had to dry my tears by candlelight. Sam Taylor had written a song called Reaching Out in Darkness that he had me sing many years ago on a recording. But there was some lyrical content that did not fit for me. It sounded like something that a man would sing and not something that a woman would sing. And so after his passing, it's a very, very different song. But I've blended some pieces from that song that Sam wrote into reaching out in darkness. So for me, it's, it's a little bit of an homage of, of co-writing a song with my hero. You can scream, you can wonder why. That's what's in the heart of a woman to love so deeply, oh, so completely. I'd like you to tell me about one of the songs. Pick one out from the session you played and tell me where it came from, what it means to you. The one I would immediately talk about is the one called Sandy. And I wrote that being from New York for when Hurricane Sandy hit New York. It was a profound experience for a lot of people that I know that were living there and lost quite a lot. Today the time Raised up her pride And she spoke With heavy hands Violently With no sympathy She took back All her land In the cold Both young and old 
bowed their heads to her power. Silently they wait to see if this was the final hour and the Statue of Liberty standing solemnly watches over the city of lights. All she can do is stare as the water rushes everywhere and the lights disappear in the night. seemed like some of your violin lines in, in that tune, Sandy, were also kind of influenced by Eastern music, like maybe Jewish folk music? Well, it's a different scale. So you're playing a harmonic minor scale. I just fell in love with that particular melody, and it, it suited the subject, it suited the chords and the feel that I was going for. So, And then I think it, it does suit, you know, you're talking about the Statue of Liberty and an Eastern European kind of sound, just fits together. That was music by Heather Hardy, accompanied by Alvin Blaine, recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood in the AZPM Radio Studio. You can find the entire session on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. On Wednesday, July 24th, AZPM's public affairs radio show, The Buzz, will tape a live show exploring gentrification and neighborhood change in Tucson. It's free and open to the public. Doors open at 6 p.m. at the Dunbar Auditorium. You can reserve your tickets and find out more at azpm.org slash buzzlive. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.